Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Here in those verses that we just read, the Apostle Paul takes us right to the heart of the Reformation as he proclaims salvation full and free for Jesus' sake and not at all because of our own good works. And so if, if you know something about the history of Martin Luther's life and his, his thought in his early years, here in these verses we see, and, and he came to see by the Holy Spirit's work in his heart, he came to see that what he thought was practically impossible, namely the salvation of a wretched, miserable sinner like himself, that that actually is stated here by God's Apostle Paul as an accomplished fact through Jesus. God is Lord over the impossible. What is impossible for us is possible with the almighty, all-loving God. As we see here in this section, the scope of God's law is comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. The Apostle Paul says in verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before that bar of God's law, that standard of perfection that God has set, all people stand condemned because all have sinned. That is, all have rebelled against our Creator God, our, our, our Heavenly Father. In the divine courtroom where the law holds sway, no one can offer any excuse or rationalization for our sin. There are no exceptions. All have sinned. All stand accused and convicted because of our sins. The Bible teaches clearly that sin may be contrary to what uh, some, some popular opinion might be in society around us, that sin is not just some great and terrible crime that is, brings harm to someone else, but know that sin can be any action or word or even thought or desire that goes against God's will for us. So, for example, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that the commandment says, you shall not murder, but not only that action of murdering someone breaks that commandment, but also having hatred in your heart toward another person also breaks that commandment in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, you know the commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, I tell you that not only that sin, that action of committing adultery breaks that commandment, but also having lustful desires in your heart or mind for a person who is not your husband or wife also breaks that commandment. And so we see by God's definition, all have sinned. And we all daily sin and need God's forgiveness. And so in the, in the futility that tags along with sin, the sinner tries to find an escape hatch, a way out. There has to be some way out. There must be an exit that will provide a way out from under the wrath of God that I deserve because of my sins. And so some people look toward their own morality, their own goodness, uh, their own ethical accomplishments. Others perhaps look inward toward a decision for Christ that they have made at some point in the past. Others might try to justify their existence by uh, focusing on, on their job or their family or wealth and, and in so doing, making those things that are not 
bad in and of themselves, but when they become the number one priority, the ultimate thing in our life, then they become a God in our hearts. Against all of these vain efforts, God uses his law to write, no exit. There's no way out of this judgment. All have sinned. With his law, God is in the business of weighing the evidence of our sin. The law not only uncovers and reveals the transgressions that are visible, but it goes to the heart of the matter. The law reveals a heart that fails to love and trust the one true God above all other things and people. There is only one verdict that the law can render. The judgment is always and forever the same for each person who has ever lived guilty. In this divine courtroom, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 19, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be subject to God's judgment. All objections are overruled. All attempts at at defending ourselves, trying to justify ourselves, they're all dismissed and denied. The verdict against sin is sure. Before the law, self-justification is impossible. Not only does the law convict and sentence, but it also carries out that sentence. God's law is the executioner as well. In Romans chapter 6, God says through Paul that the wages of sin or the consequence for sin is death. God's law distributes those wages. Without mercy, the law puts all sinners to death, not just physical death, but ultimately eternal death in hell apart from the Savior. And so all of all of our attempts to use God's law as kind of a ladder to try to to work our way out of that pit of condemnation, all of those efforts are useless. God tells us that he did not give us his law as a means for us to earn our own salvation. As we sing in the, the favorite hymn, Salvation Unto Us Has Come in stanza three, It is a false, misleading dream that God, his law, has given that sinners can themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. Rather, as our confirmation students have recently learned, the law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. So we see from God's word from this reading in Romans chapter 3 that the law does not have power to save us from our sins. But it does, it does indeed have some power. And that is with deadly accuracy, just like that mirror that shows us clearly our reflection, the law makes us aware of sin. And as the law does its, does its work, it leaves us with a terrifying knowledge that before the God who created us, we stand guilty, hopeless. By ourselves. And so left with just that message of God's law, our doom would be certain. We'd be hopeless and in despair of only ending up in eternal suffering and hell. But thanks be to God that God does the impossible. Just as we read in verse 23 of, our, of Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
God continues through his apostle in the very next verse, so also all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. With God's law, there are no exceptions. All are accused, all are convicted, and with the cross of Jesus, there are also no exceptions. All are justified freely. As God says through his apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. So no one may say that their sins are too great to be forgiven. No one needs to wonder whether Jesus' forgiveness is for them too. Because God assures us that Jesus' saving death is all-inclusive. His death has paid for all sins of all people of the whole world. And God has placed no price tag on this precious gift. The grace of God, which does the impossible of justifying sinful human beings, is utterly free. Our gracious God doesn't give us just in, in little bits and pieces, and he's also not to be bargained with or manipulated. No, his lavish grace flows freely from the cross of Jesus, where our Savior paid the debt for our sinfulness. And he paid that debt, as our confirmation students also have memorized, as Luther wrote in the explanation to the second article of the Apostles' Creed in the small catechism. Jesus paid our debt of sinfulness not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Because of the death of his only son, God delivers a verdict that the world considers not only improbable, but also impossible. You get what's coming to you. That's the world's way of thinking. And indeed, sin certainly does have its consequences. Sin brings with it the companions of death and damnation and hell. And sinners do have those consequences coming to them. But the joyous announcement of the gospel that we see in this reading from Romans chapter 3 is that God's own Son, Jesus, takes what we sinners have coming to us and he carries it on himself to death on the cross. God the Father gave his only begotten Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as our sacrificial substitute, Jesus stands in our place. He bears our sin and hangs on the cross under the wrath of the Almighty God for us. His death provides us with redemption. He pays the price that our sins deserve. There at the cross of Calvary, we are declared forgiven, freely and fully forgiven for Jesus' sake. And so, the Apostle Paul writes that God's verdict makes boasting impossible. Faith is not our work. Salvation is not our work. It's God's work. And so be careful of, of those, even well-meaning fellow Christians, who uh, perhaps unintentionally would undo the Bible's proclamation of the unconditional gospel by turning faith inward upon itself, by redefining faith not as a gift from God to us which receives the blessings of Jesus' salvation, 
but by redefining faith as something that we do, a commitment that we make, devoting ourselves to Jesus, our decision for him, or or merely some kind of feeling of self-confidence within our hearts. God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation and faith itself is God's gracious gift to us. And so our faith doesn't focus on itself. We don't look within ourselves to determine, do I have faith? Is my faith strong enough? No, our faith focuses on the Savior, on Jesus. He is the sole object and anchor of saving faith. Faith is not some kind of self-confidence, but it's Christ-confidence. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone. It never looks to itself for power, but to Christ. So Martin Luther wrote about faith in, in, in this way in one of his sermons on John's Gospel. He said, All that Christ has is mine. Through him we acquire all his goods and eternal life. Even if my faith is feeble, I still have the self-same treasure and the self-same Christ that others have. There is no difference. Faith in him makes us all perfect, but works do not. We might compare this to two persons who possess a hundred guldens, gold coins. The one may carry them in a paper sack. The other may keep them in an iron chest. But for all that, both possess the entire treasure. Thus, the Christ whom you and I own is one and the same, regardless of the strength or the weakness of your faith or of mine. But Satan would lure us into either despair or arrogant pride by diverting our attention away from Jesus and to the quality or strength of our faith. Some people become troubled or unsure in their faith when their faith seems to falter or to waver. But God directs us away from ourselves and to what he has achieved for us in Christ Jesus our Savior. But on the other hand, Some might take pride in feeling that they have a a strong faith. But faith saves not because the faith itself is strong, but because the object of our faith is strong. Because Jesus is the one whom we believe. Jesus is our Savior. The work that he completed on the cross is what saves us. God provides our full salvation. Jesus has rescued us. He has mercy on us. When Jesus was hanging there in the darkness on the cross on Good Friday, he cried out, It is finished. He was announcing to the whole world at that time and and for every age afterwards to, to us here today that everything that needed to be done for the salvation of the world was accomplished. We can add nothing to the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Faith simply receives that gift of forgiveness and salvation. And again, the the faith itself that receives those gifts is also itself a gift from God, that God works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, working through the gospel message. And so there is absolutely no room for ourselves to boast in our faith or in our works or anything else. We simply come before God with empty hands and with open ears and with open mouths and as we wait to receive the Lord's Supper, 
to receive those fruits of our Lord Jesus' redeeming work for us. Martin Luther reminds us that when we are troubled by our sins, when when we're feeling burdened by the guilt of the, the sins that we have committed, we are to go back to the good news of forgiveness and salvation that God announces to us in his word. The message of Jesus forgiving our sins by his death on the cross and that God conveys to us in the sacrament of baptism and in the Lord's Supper. There, the salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross of Calvary is bestowed on each one of us individually. There we have unwavering assurance of the full forgiveness of our sins and of our eternal salvation, all for Jesus' sake. The festival of the Reformation is a festival of receivers. We rejoice in the fact that God has accomplished the impossible, that we sinners have been saved from the consequences of our sins. God's gift of salvation is utterly free, undeserved, unearned by us. There's nothing for us to brag about, nothing for us to do, because as verse 28 of our reading states, we conclude that a person is justified by faith without the works of the law. And so we join with the Apostle Paul in saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.